1: Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
2: Why does politics fail? Why did Brexit cause parliamentary deadlocks after the British public voted to leave? Has the political chaos of the last few years been caused by inept MPs or the system itself? I sat down with political scientist and the BBC's Wraith lecturer for 2023, Ben Ansel. To discuss the ways in which british politics is broken and more importantly how it can still succeed
1: am i tough enough strong and stable leadership total rhubarb hell
2: yes i'm tough enough
1: shut the fridge not another one
2: it's the politics show oh. cast ben Ansel, hello how's it going hi ollie it's going great thank you good i'm glad. glad having me here no very very glad to um have you here for those who don't know how would you introduce
0: yourself? Tell us who you are. So I'm Ben Ansell. I'm, I have a very long title, unfortunately. <laughs> Professor of Comparative Democratic Institutions at the University of Oxford. The title is long, by the way, because they couldn't decide which job I should get, so they just merged the titles. <laughs> me it bye. tells you something about how my employer works. Mm. Um, so I am the author of Why Politics Fails, which I've carefully placed over there, which it came out uh, in March um, with Penguin and now just came out in paperback. So, Anyone who's a cheapskate, or me, uh, can, <laughs> can buy the paperback um, much more affordably. I am also this year's BBC Reef lecturer, uh, which means I uh, have given and will be giving a series of lectures around the country and around the world, and those are broadcast starting on the 29th of November uh, at 9am after the Today programme on Radio 4. So if you want to listen to them, do that. Or BBC Sounds, or your favourite podcast provider, will have them if you prefer to choose the time in which you listen to me Absolutely, non-linear. Um,
2: and what are the subjects of the lectures? So,
0: so the, the title is, is rather grandly called Our Democratic Future, which I thought was very BBC when, when I came up <laughs> with it. Uh, and it builds off um, a lot of stuff in the book that we'll be talking about today. So the book is broken into sort of five big things that we, we might all want, which are in the book, democracy, equality, solidarity, security and prosperity but you know what they only gave me four reflexes okay so you have to cut one so I have and this is really ironic I've sacrificed equality very good um, <laughs> but don't worry it's gonna make its appearance. The first casualty <laughs> it really it always the first casualty of <laughs> neoliberalism it's <laughs> equality um, ironically through the public broadcaster mm. um, and that's sort of good you know it pervades throughout but we'll talk about it when I talk about prosperity which I'm going to go and do In Atlanta actually uh, in a few days time. Oh brilliant. So it's a great place to talk about equality and prosperity.
2: So then to um, summarise the thesis of the book, to to paraphrase it or give it in a few
0: lines, what's the premise? So the premise of the book uh, is that gosh there are a lot of things that actually I think people do agree on, Mm. Um, probably not the use of the word gosh, Um, (laughs) but and and those are the things I just mentioned about democracy, equality, solidarity, uh, prosperity and security but there are things we sort of agree on in the abstract and then when it boils down to getting somewhere, getting actual policies that reflect that, then we all end up tearing at each other's throats. Uh, And so the book sort of has two messages. On the one hand, that's inevitable, right? Don't be surprised that you disagree with people about even how to think about equality or whether our democratic system works or not, or what real democracy would be, right? Think back to Brexit. Some people, very democratic. Some people felt anti-democratic. So that's the first reason why politics fails is is broadly that we disagree and then there are all these traps I go through in the book We may talk about today that make it particularly hard to get to these goals So that's the sort of first story. There's a slightly more sophisticated answer though Please. uh, Which is, uh, for the Politics Jo audience (laughs) um, Which is that politics fails if you try and solve these problems and ignore politics and pretend it's not there Uh, So I think the fundamental reason that i'm interested in politics and i think people should be interested in politics and obviously buy my book and watch politics <laughs> joe on youtube always is uh, is that we're stuck with it right we have to use it and alternatives to it sort of trying to use markets to magic away disagreement um trying to use technology uh to get over political problems assuming that um there's a leader out there who can make us all agree those fundamentally don't work, right? We do disagree, we have to figure out how to disagree effectively uh, and agreeably, and that's something I'll talk about in the Reef Lectures. Um, And the book's not gonna solve exactly how to do that, but, um, and I'll stop talking about this in one second, but let me use my favorite analogy for this. So I think of the book as an act of political therapy, right? So you go and you talk to a therapist uh, about personal problems that you're having in your life, and the therapist, Turns around and asks you lots of questions about your own behaviors and why you do the things you do. And I guess the first thought that comes into your mind is, Why am I paying for this? Mm. But the second thing is to start thinking more seriously about the kinds of pathological behaviors that you engage in in your own life to at least understand them on the assumption that understanding something helps you figure out how you're going to resolve it in the long run. Mm. Of course, anyone who who's been to a therapist knows that doesn't always play out and it won't with politics either. But the idea of the book is to make us all think about when we engage with politics, most of us are actually kind of self-interested. Most of us are willing to uh, justify things that might be good for us in in grander, more selfless terms. And so it's it's asking you to look inwards and think a little bit about what are the lies that you tell yourself um, and why, therefore, you might be a lot more like the people you disagree with than you think you are.
2: Well, uh, on that point then, let's talk a little bit about Brexit. You start with, um, you open the book with an anecdote, right? 2019, um, going into Parliament to try and sort of break the deadlock around the votes. I think it's the third vote, right, on Theresa May's Brexit bill. Why did you choose Brexit as the kind of trigger, both to maybe perhaps start writing this, but as the opening point, as an example or as a a jumping off point for why democratic
0: politics can fail? Well, I think anyone who lived in this country during that period of time would want to write, write or hopefully read, and buy and read a book called Why Politics Fails. Um, so, you know, for one, it was obviously looming large in my mind, and I had this experience that I can talk about in a second. But, you know, the book is, the book is being sold internationally, right? so there's an American version with a different darker cover, mm, and there it's natural. been translated into other languages. So our own experience about Brexit may not be quite as interesting to other people as it is to us, except actually as an example, of how democracy can pivot between these two extremes that I talk about in the book, between chaos and polarisation. So the chaos is when you can't make any decision at all. Mm. That's what happened with Theresa May's bill. Uh, and MPs just kept spiralling around and being unable to agree. And then we pivoted very fast in the 2019 election to polarisation, where one side got what they want, the others got nothing, mm. and that was the done deal. Uh, so to me, Brexit's a nice example of how politics can veer between those points. Uh, as well as, you know, that whole period just being totally mad.
2: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned MPs in that because I think some people would come back to you and say, well, that deadlock was the result of, you know, inept, um, self-interested politicians. How much, how valid is it in your mind to say the problem is not the system, it's the characters involved in it? Yeah. Or conversely... Is, is it the opposite? Is it the system that's perhaps more of a problem
0: than the individuals? So I'm absolutely in agreement with the fact, with the, with the claim that MPs are self-interested, mm. but not necessarily one that they're inept. In fact, the problem is that they weren't inept enough <laughs> because they were, they were all strategizing so cleverly, right? So right. think, for example, about the Scottish National Party and the Lib Dems. We had these indicative votes. It's very, very clear to me that the, the Lib Dems at least, and probably the Scottish National Party, would have preferred a very soft Brexit to the world in which we live. But they thought, well, maybe if we say we don't like this very soft Brexit and only a referendum will do for us, then we'll nix that moderate or moderate-ish option and we'll get what we want when the dust settles. Uh, And that turned out, of course, not to be the case. Mm. Had they voted sincerely rather than strategically in the indicative votes, where you may all recall we had we had came up with, I went down to Parliament, I talk about this in the book, to come up with an electoral system for the MPs to choose among a set of options that they could plausibly all approve. What we didn't <laughs> tweak on was that they couldn't plausibly approve any of those options. <laughs> so the whole idea that you could get to the second stage of choosing among them was gone. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that can't really have been true. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, I, I don't believe that there was a majority in Parliament to end up the way we ended up, and so they would have accepted a soft Brexit, but they were all trying to be too clever, mm. not inept enough, right? Had, had had they not been strategizing, had they just sort of blindly walked in and done what they wanted to, and not been clever clever about it, then I think we would have ended up with a slightly softer version of Theresa May's bill. Mm, interesting, and and obviously as well, a lot of the
2: MPs at that time invoking the will of the people, yeah, um, a concept or a phrase which you sort of uh, refute in in the book, yeah.
0: Why is that? Why? So I'm, yeah, I'm very against the, the, the use of the phrase, which is a bit unfair on me because I don't think when people are talking about it, they literally believe that everybody agrees on something. Right? I mean, I think I think we know that. Um, so th- there's two ways, though, of, of weakening the idea. Right? One is to say sometimes, actually, there is no clear will. There's no clear majority for anything, and you just get all this shifting nonsense, which is what we ha- had with Brexit. Um, so Parliament couldn't agree on a majority of them approving anything at all. So that's a good example of where there just isn't one. Mm. But then we have this other situation where you have majority voting and you win an election by, oh, I don't know, 52 to 48. And then you do have a will of the people in one way, right? A clear decision was made, but you have the problem of losers consent now. And that works two ways, right? On the one hand, um, the losers of the election have to consent to it happening. Right? Well, there wasn't much that Remainers could do. Right? Mm. They, didn't, they didn't completely revolt, but they did try and delay it in lots of ways. Right? They didn't provide their consent easily. And on the other side, the winners have to acknowledge that the losers are going to be around the next day. And again, the winners did not show an enormous amount of um, magnanimous behaviour after the fact. Right? Mm. Um, and so we did have a kind of blunt will of the people there, but you don't want to confuse the fact that a decision's been made with the idea that everybody agrees on it, or even feels compelled to agree on it.
2: Mm.
0: Another aspect of that, that time in politics, which uh, maybe we'll stop revisiting it in a moment
2: because it's fairly traumatic. Uh, you know, attacks on the judiciary. Yeah. Right? Enemies of the people. Uh, 2019, we get the unlawful prorogation of parliament. Most recently, we've seen um, legislation sort of aimed at weakening trade unions. Mm-hmm all of which previously you would sort of point to and say, oh, well, these are fundamental democratic institutions. Is it fair, therefore, to argue that we are in the midst of a, well, call it what you want,
0: democratic deficit, democratic recession? I mean, I think a lot of people are very worried about the stability of liberal democracy. I mean, in in some way, all the things you've said there, uh, someone who is a really pure majoritarian would say, great, all of these impediments to the national will you know, in a referendum or in a 1st past the post election are being taken away. I guess a lot of liberals have discovered that they're small C conservatives. Mm. That they like institutions, uh, and those those constraining institutions, those countervailing things, they're not democratic by nature. Right, that House of Lords is not democratic, judiciary is not democratic, the press is not elected by anyone, uh, and that's fine. Right, that's how a liberal democracy works. We balance the tyranny of the majority against the tyranny of the minority, if you will. Um, And so, I think. A lot of people have learned in the last few years a lesson about what happens when you just try and smash institutions and what lies behind them. Right? Mm. So we, we talk in my first brief lecture quite a lot, all the Q&A for 10 minutes is about the House of Lords and that <laughs> is only partly because there are several Lords in the audience <laughs> who were sort of mildly piqued when yeah. we talked about it. Um, but I think the first thing that anyone who wants to go with the House of Lords has to ask, answer is well what would a better second chamber look like? And then it, t- it turns out that we don't all agree on what that would look like and that's why we end up with the thing that we have. So there is a better the devil you know issue here. I mean think for example about the Rwanda policy. The reason that's not gonna happen and no one's ever gonna get on a plane to Rwanda and therefore my joke on Twitter two years ago about I'll eat a dead cat if anyone ever (laughs) goes to Rwanda I think will hold up and I won't have to eat a dead cat is because the Lords will block it because it wasn't in the manifesto. Mm. Um, And so the Lords will again sort of save liberals in a way that I think most liberals would find awkward, but that is also going to apply to conservatives in the future and quite possibly in the very near future.
2: It's the politics show cast. Uh, let's move from chaos to polarisation. Yep uh an interesting point you note in the book this is a quote one of the strongest predictors of people's social distancing behaviors was whether they voted to leave the european union yeah. uh, why has our democracy been so open to polarization and perhaps also if you could just provide a definition of terms what do you mean when you say polarization
0: yeah actually, I mean that's great that you've asked that because people throw around the word all the time and you know i probably am, am doing it in the book more than i care to so polarization in in some ways is people knowing What they agree on across lots of dimensions of politics. Right, so. If you think about times, maybe the best way to think about this is with the US Senate, which is always used as this example of it's become more polarized. And it has on all the measures that we political scientists use. So what are those measures? Well, they're basically how often do Democrats vote along with Republicans, or Republicans vote along with Democrats. And because politics in America in the middle of the 20th century was complicated, for reasons I'll come to in a second, (laughs) lots of Democrats voted with Republicans. Great. Except they were voting against the Civil Rights Act. Not so great. Um, And so polarisation often happens when parties are just more coherent voting blocks. Is that good? Is it bad? I mean, it's obviously bad to have less polarisation if it means that you deprive African-Americans of the vote. Um, But we might actually think it's good for parties to be kind of coherent. What I've been, you know, post-writing the book and wish I'd said this at the time, chaos cages, right? So politics is chaotic. Parties kind of sort that out for us. So that's the good side of polarisation. The bad side is what um, social scientists call affective polarisation, which is like it just bleeds into how we feel about everybody else. Right? So polarisation just having more coherent disagreement, that might be fine. But when it's coherent, angry, venomous disagreement, uh, where you are asserting things about the character of other people because of who they support, yeah, that's less good. And, and I have some you know, stats I, I mentioned in the book and in the, in the, uh, in the talks that um, you know, fewer than 5% of all marriages in America are now between registered Democrats and Republicans. Mm. And registered Democrats and Republicans are a third of the population each. They just don't intermarry. Um, and you're, and you're, um, your followers will all be aware of all of those surveys about, you know, would you be upset if your child married a leaver or a Remainer? And lots of people are upset. But the people who are most upset are people on the left, mm. who really don't want their children <laughs> marrying Lever's or Conservatives. Is it? Fair. Which will be easy because of the
2: generational <laughs> difference. <laughs> yeah, those, those there's other questions we'd have to answer there. Um, I'd just like to interrogate that point for a minute because I think, you know, looking at particularly um, Robert Ford's work and others, yeah. you know, this identity liberal, identity conservative split, which obviously Brexit broadly cleaves along. There's also the age, demographic, yeah, cleaving right. there. Absolutely. Uh, and then education feeds into that as well. And I wonder if, you know, obviously it's, we're already in a binary and I'm asking you to simplify yeah. which of those sort of three things is you think perhaps the most important there. But if you were to kind of say, this is the defining cleavage, this mm-hmm. is the defining fault line, is it between remain and leave? Is it age? Is it um, education level? Or is it all three and that you broadly agree with, with the work that I just referenced?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I do broadly agree with them. Let's call it generational. I think that's the easy way to think about it because it's not it's not just the act of growing old, right? If we had some kind of weird Benjamin Button experiment where we could age or de-age somebody, uh, I don't think that is what explains their preferences. I think it's growing up in a certain milieu in a certain time period with certain debates happening and growing up, and this gets to your point about education, when people did or didn't go to university en masse. Mm. I mean, it's very hard to separate out the education and age effects, but with that said, if you look among over 50s, the effect of going to university on support for Brexit and on other kind of social liberal attitudes is the same as it is for under 50s. So things are happening sort of within these age groups, but the real action is that, well, five, 10% of people over 50, well, not quite 50, but over 60 went to university and it's, you know, 40, 50% now. So the composition just sort of outweighs everything else. Mm, I'd like to interrogate a little bit more uh, in a moment
2: uh, the points on university education, but if we are to, just i want to delve into this a little bit more on two fronts one the way in which the, the sort of the political tendencies of that younger generation don't appear to be changing in the way that they used to they don't appear to be swinging to the right yeah. in the way yeah, that they used absolutely. to um and within that as well particularly in europe actually we're seeing now the younger generation actually cleaving more towards the right wing of yeah, politics yeah
0: and particularly the anti-establishment right. exactly so marine le pen mm-hmm. much more popular among younger people than we would anticipate um georgia maloney yep. uh, i haven't yet checked out you know who voted for builders i don't know god knows how dutch exit polls count all of that but yeah but the idea that the young are sort of uniformly homogeneously this group of cultural liberals is a very anglo-american way of looking at the world that doesn't even cross the channel very well in fact Mm -hmm. i mean who knows if it'll even cross the irish sea right so politics does vary within within the anglosphere that way Um, what i think is um, most interesting about the sort of lack of a shift in terms of when people age uh, is that the things that used to make people conservative that made them more conservative as they got older aren't having that effect anymore. So uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my sub stack, benansel.substack.com. Possibly, I'm actually not sure what <laughs> I'm not you're sure Googling how you will find But write, write the words <laughs> Ben Ansel and Substack into Google. Uh, one of the analyses I did was about home ownership um, and its effects on politics and people's attitudes towards building houses and all of that. But one of the things I've been looking at is how homeowners of different generations have veered politically. So they always, people bought a home, they always used to veer to the right. And that actually stopped with my age group, Gen Xers, my generation. Gen Xers have been sort of flatly, slightly more left-wing than than, than all all the other generations have picked up. And Gen Xers haven't veered in another direction, right? We're that useless (laughs) and lazy (laughs) that we've just bobbed along, you know, very much to our stereotype. (laughs) but millennials millennial homeowners all three of them they have um, they have veered to the left mm. so when when that kind of group of centre-right thinkers in this country like seth Payne or robert colville and, and co talk about we need home ownership it's going to kill the conservative party if young people can't own homes they're right but i don't believe that young homeowners mm-hmm. are the solution to the conservative party right now because it's sort of too late
2: yeah, interesting.
0: And just finally on this point as well, the
2: difference between these kind of right-wing anti-establishment electoral successes that we're seeing yeah, on the continent. Yeah, absolutely. As yet, not happening here, is that because... And I know we're talking in incredibly simplified terms here, but, you know, it's an interview, so you just have to deal with it. Um, is that because we've had our anti-establishment right-wing revolt in the Brexit vote? Is it because, actually, you've been looking at 13 years of Conservative government and that's going to change mm-hmm. now? What is... What, to your mind, if you can point to anything, yeah. why, why is there that difference going on, do you think?
0: So I don't think it's because we're, we're more trustful in politicians. You, know, um, you mentioned earlier, and I didn't come back to it, so I will now, that people who voted Brexit were, were um, less likely to social distance. They were less likely to take the vaccine. But I don't think it's because like, the act of voting for Brexit has <laughs> some kind of effect on you. It's because these are low-trust people. Uh. They didn't trust the government, therefore they voted to leave the European Union, because they didn't trust government at any level, especially not Brussels. And they also don't trust the advice they get from government. So it's the lack of trust. And that's, that's very common in this country as well as elsewhere. Where we differ, I think, be slightly careful about this because it's always tempting fate, is, is I do think the UK is a much more successful multiracial democracy than other European countries. Mm. Um, not necessarily the most in the world, right? I think make arguments about Canada and, and other countries, but I, I do think there's a sort of missing story that we haven't told ourselves about the last couple of years, which is in the total milestone of the Conservative Party, we've now ended up with several chancellors in a row uh, who were ethnic minorities, Home Secretaries who ethnic minorities, now a Prime Minister is an ethnic minority. We, we've kind of been speed running demographic change within a centre-right party, um in a way that is is now actually quite rare i think internationally and certainly in european terms i mean that said it didn't help vvd very much yesterday in in the um, in the dutch election mm-hmm. having having a turkish li- leader um you know the anti-immigrant voters <laughs> moved to good builders uh consequently but but i think that's a sort of under under discussed point you know certainly in comparison to what was a much more monumental change in 2008 in america but i think it's because it's happened under under the center right party rather than the center left party mm. but that means i think that the a, a kind of much more them and us around ethnic lines debate in the uk it just can't be had at political levels in the way that it that's had in europe right and so then there's obviously dog whistles there's obviously people who are ethnocentric which is you know social science polite term for something much worse but at the elite level, in politics, it's I think it's just spoken about more differently in this country. So we get angry about migration, it's true, but I just think the politics is a bit nastier in, in several European countries. Interesting. On these matters.
2: Uh, let's delve into uh, this point about university education. Then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you could talk about that a little bit more, because it's an interesting idea in the book that sort of the, the widening, the expansion of access to university education has sort of... Possibly fueling polarisation, could you talk
0: about that a bit more? Yeah, so actually the very first thing I did my academic work on, what I wrote my PhD on, was on on education spending and education expansion and differences around the world. And I was doing so in the early 2000s at a time where in the UK that was really happening for the first time. And I guess the question I was interested in then is, well why is is tuition fees and expansion happening under a left-wing party? But it's happened all across Europe since that point. I... um, think then the kind of second question that follows from that is okay well what are the consequences politically and in the economy from this mass like totally unprecedented change in the amount of education people have and in the economy uh, in countries that can't absorb high numbers of graduates into jobs that traditionally required graduates it means lots of what i uh, my call for Jane Gingrich and I call mismatched people and the mismatched people are graduates in non-graduate jobs or traditionally non-graduate jobs. And so if you look at what those people think about society, the economy and politics, they're much, much less satisfied with their life than um, graduates and graduate jobs, and they basically look like people who never went to university. Uh, they're less trustful of politicians, they're less satisfied with democracy, and they're more likely to vote for the radical right. Mm. So here's another reason why the radical right might be more popular in parts of Europe. Uh, because the, many of those economies, particularly in Southern Europe, are less able to absorb having 40, 50 percent graduate rates. And so you do end up, I mean, I know Peter Turkin's written books about this, but you end up it's with on, yeah. kind of overeducated group. And I think that, you know, that was something that people talked about in the 1960s with um, post-colonial countries in Ghana, where the Ghanaian um, independence movement was driven in part by people who'd, uh, got education under the colonial regime and there were no jobs for them and so then you had these kind of angry, yeah well it was mostly angry young men at mm. the time. Um, so we're not the first people to go through that and I don't think we're going through it anywhere like the Spanish or Italians and so on. How do you see uh, wealth inequality fitting into that polarisation equation? Yeah so I mean that's that's something I, I ran a big project on and for me it's always about housing um, Okay, so here's the weird thing about wealth inequality. Places with really expensive housing that nobody can afford are not the angry places. They're the places that were happy with the system. So they all voted for Remain in Britain. So house prices at the local authority level explain about 50% of the Brexit vote, which is is, a good amount in social science terms. You give a big thumbs up (laughs) when you have an R squared that big. Um, (laughs) And that actually, and you might think, oh, it's just the South, but it actually works within London more than anywhere else. So Hillingdon, uh, and Havering and boroughs with the lowest house prices were the most supportive of Brexit, and the most expensive ones in you know, Islington and whatever and Kensington and Chelsea were the most supportive. Uh, true in Bristol as well. So we've ended up in this weird world where the revolt against our current situation is uh, is not a revolt of people priced out in the expensive areas. It's a revolt of people who are in stagnating areas or so-called left behind areas. Uh, where actually most people own their houses and can afford their day to life so day to day life, so I think it 's more of a resentment factor, resentment of London resentment at the south than it is this kind of direct economic effect of you know oh my god there 's so much inequality around me
2: mm. uh, to achieve the sort of the ideals of democracy that you talk about in the book, you, you suggest that it requires long term thinking yeah. lo- long term strategy um, sunak's government have come out with the decision long term decisions for a brighter future. Do you agree on much
0: um, so I'm delighted that Rishi Sunak has realised <laughs> that uh, making long-run decisions uh, would be a good idea for the country. I'm not totally sure that the changes to HS2 are consistent with that, uh, with that plan. Uh, it's also quite funny when people talk about like, sort of long-run futures in the last year of an electoral cycle. Yeah. Would have been a good thing to say at the start. Um, I, I, do, I, I do think that there's an understanding in the government, and obviously in the opposition, and actually in the civil service too, that we have just been making decisions looking, you know, two months in front of us. Look, I mean, really looking at headlines the next day. Mm. Really systematically in this country, you know, not just over the last 10 years, because I think this this happened in New Labour, but it's just become ever more intensified. Some some of the kind of gotcha journalism that political correspondents engage in makes that worse, right? Because everybody's so desperate not to get a bad headline that they unwilling to talk about people needing to take on costs for long-run benefits and that's something I talk about a lot in the book uh, and they're more willing to come up with quick retail politics uh, that are like sugar rush policies mm. that uh, that make things worse ultimately. God, I'm sounding like a kind of granddad telling people to eat <laughs> their greens here right but I think our country probably does need to eat its greens a bit more than it's been doing. And if
2: I come back and say, "Well, electoral cycle—you're never going to get a, a party that takes government any more seriously than what can happen in five years' time because they've got to stand for an election."
0: What do we? Yeah, what do we I'd end say, up? In? Well done, you've read. The right <laughs> um, is the short-term electoral cycle in in a in first-past-the-post system is going to lead to this this kind of volatility? I think it's worse in this country for a couple of reasons than it is in, say, Canada or the US, that also have 1st bus post systems. Go on. God knows politics isn't perfect in, in the US. It's obviously perfect in Canada. I'm married to a Canadian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what's our problem well we have a complete a super centralized uh policy uh run from whitehall i used to work for the treasury so i know what it's like it's not only by the way super centralized geographically it's super centralized in that the treasury tells everybody what (laughs) to do right so there's a single point of decision making and that means that if you take the commanding heights of westminster then you take the commanding heights of whitehall and you can change everything very very quickly and if governments kind of veer back and forth then they can scorch the earth or salt the earth for the others uh very very easily the other thing is we don't have any kind of regional or national counterparts to that so the us obviously you have the states you have a much more uh you have a much stronger judicial system pushing back you obviously have an executive in the presidency that's different from congress and everything is is combined here And, and look at how angry politicians get about the supreme court in this country which is one of the few mechanisms for kind of slowing them down. Mm. So we have an electoral system that encourages volatility combined with uh, a really centralized government that amplifies the volatility and that's why we're particularly prone to short-termism. The only good thing is we can make policy really fast, so we can get our vaccines out like one month before the Europeans mm. <laughs> crow about it. Okay, it probably does have something to do with our system, but note that they and everybody else you know, got there in the end. Um, so you'd really have to really value speed of decision-making and discretion to think that the British system is optimal. That's really interesting
2: because, you know, another very popular substack in this country, Dominic Cummings, which for my sins, yes. I'll admit, I read, you know, sometimes at length. Um, well, you have to read it at length. Otherwise you don't understand what he's talking <laughs> there's, about. No, yeah. there's
0: no short version there's of no, that. There's
2: no proceeds. But, you know, so his argument goes, uh, probably slightly bastardised, but it goes, uh, Whitehall, civil service, blob, ineffectual, yeah. useless. Reason why... Uh, mass testing, vaccine task force, any of that stuff worked, is because we said, suspend the rules, plough on, this is a national emergency, treat wartime footing. Um, Why did you see it differently?
0: Uh, I think, actually, you, uh, the last thing I said before that question was, if you really value speed, our system works. Mm. Otherwise, it doesn't. There are a few times where it really matters. And so Cummings is absolutely... Well, I'm going to be very careful. <laughs> Cummings is absolutely right Cummings is very interesting mm, very good very good I, I think you know I, 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 look, I worked in the civil service and, and, I, and I know how the training goes and I think I coming in as an outsider felt frustrated that it was it's quite stayed and it has its own processes and it certainly has its own processes of hiring it's very hard for people to come in as outsiders to it right so mm. all of that I in I'm in agreement with him I also think the Treasury is too powerful although I'm not sure he, he would agree with that it depends if you can choose the Chancellor yeah. um, <laughs> So another good, good example where this worked was when Gordon Brown saved the world mm-hmm. right, the, in the financial crisis. Because then again, being able to act rapidly was really important. Uh, so gridlock, you know, which I remember in the States at that same time, where George Bush came with a bailout bill and he brought it to Congress and Congress said, oh, no, we don't like it. And they voted it down. <laughs> and then the markets collapsed. And then they brought it back again. And Congress was like, oh, OK, sorry. <laughs> like, those kind of things, yes, th- those are slow. But note that this only works with in in these really extreme moments where politicians behave because it didn't work in the first months of 2019 when we when the clock was ticking and we were supposed to be making a Brexit decision Mm. and our system it wasn't the civil service getting in the way it was Parliament you know the entity that Cummings thinks should be making these decisions or at least electing the executive that makes the decisions couldn't do it Mm. what gives you hope Um, what gives me hope well I'm I'm an optimist so what gives me hope is that we live in a much better Richer, freer world than our parents and our great grandparents. We can leave richer, but freer, absolutely. And you know, we do. You know, if you think about the fact that I can pull out of my pocket a little glass square and I book a restaurant in San Francisco, and you, you know, speak to friends I haven't seen for twenty years. That's that's a mad world that I didn't grow up in. I'm, you know, I'm only in my mid forties. I'm not that ancient. Um, so, and I think the technologies we have also liberate us as individuals to do things we want to do, to free us to say what we want. So I think all of the constraints that our parents and grandparents grew up on in terms of social norms about who you could be, who you could love, what you could think, have really dissolved over the last 20 or 30 years, again, in ways that we sometimes take for granted, as we do with the ethnic composition of our government and things like that. Mm. So there is lots of good. There's one big bad out there right now, and that's that this country is in its worst growth period since the Napoleonic Wars. Um, that's not great, right? That's 200 years. Well, well done, Ridley Scott, in timing the movie for that. Um, but uh, that's, that's very tough. It's very tough for any policymaker to make decisions because what they give with one hand, as you know, happened in the Autumn Statement, right? Cut taxes with one hand. By the way, on the other hand, there'll be no increase uh, with inflation for public spending, right? So mm. everything is take from one gift to another. And that doesn't give us the ability to smooth over some of our disagreements that we're going to have. So I think what this country really needs is growth. I think we all know Liz Truss was right about one thing, and that was that we do need growth in mm. the country. I think she misidentified who the anti-growth <laughs> coalition was in a very amusing fashion. Um, but I do, I do think, and I do believe that This cannot continue indefinitely and that we will, you know, it's possible that a new government comes into power and business just starts investing more and no one really does anything about it. Um, You know, that's sort of my hope. It does look like policymakers haven't given us much growth, so we sort of have to hope for it to come organically. But when it does, and it will at some point, then I think our politics will feel a little less knife edged and we can now then have that boring old debate we used to have in the 90s, but they're all the same. Mm. There's no real difference. Wouldn't mind that. Yeah, exactly. Um,
2: ben, Ansel, the book Why Politics Fails is out now. And one last time, where can people catch your wreath
0: lectures? They can listen to it on Radio 4, 9am from Wednesday, the 29th of November, weekly, for four weeks, or at some later point on Sunday <laughs> evening. Or, uh, should you enjoy non-linear stylings, you can uh, download it on BBC Sounds and or your favourite podcast delivery service. Ben, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you.